turn now at this time to chapter 37. This time to Ezekiel and chapter 37, please. Thank you so much for coming and it's a joy to continue to have fellowship with you here at Points Pass and you really are blessed, I think, to have a very, very welcoming and uh, and kind uh, group of believers here and I certainly have benefited from that, uh, from hospitality and from kindness shown uh, to me by so many. So thank you for the warmth of your welcome as it continues. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 37 then and uh, let's just remind ourselves of what we've covered thus far uh, with the Lord's help this week. On Monday evening, we looked at the vision of the glorious throne of Almighty God. The vision of this great chariot, of the living creatures, of the wheels within wheels, covered in eyes, the omniscience, the omnipresence of our majestic God. Chapter 1. And then we looked at the call of the prophet in Ezekiel's chapters 2 and 3, commissioned, called to be a witness for God and a watchman for God's people. And then last night was a solemn night as we went with Ezekiel back to, in a vision to the temple of Jerusalem in the present day, in Ezekiel's present day, and saw the unfolding of the grossest idolatry there in the temple of Jerusalem, that very place where God had said his name would dwell. He staked his reputation on that city and we saw these terrible, vile abominations in that very place, the temple of the true and living God. Now we're zooming far forward, far forward in the book of Ezekiel, all the way through to chapter 37. And we're going to be looking at the restoration of Israel, the restoration of Israel uh, this evening in chapter 37. And then tomorrow night, God willing, we will look at the glory of the future temple. Now uh, that is covered in chapters 40 to 48. So uh, you won't be surprised that we won't be dealing with all of chapters 40 to 48, but we'll be looking at some highlights and some core truths about this coming future millennial temple. Well, let me give you a structure then for chapter 37. And um, if you're taking notes, then you can note these down. And uh, we're going to split it into two parts. So the first 14 verses, I would call this a depiction, a depiction of Israel's resurrection. A depiction of Israel's resurrection, verses 1 to 14. And then verses 15 to 28, I would call this a description of Israel's restoration. A description of Israel's restoration. And then three points within these. So firstly, verses 1 to 3, I want to see a picture of death. A picture of death. Then verses 4 to 10, the power of the word. The power of the word. And then verses 11 to 14, the purposes of God. And then in that second section, the description of Israel's restoration, I want us to see 15 to 22, one people from two. One people from two. And then verse 23 alone, the purity that God desires. The purity that God desires. And lastly, 24 to 28, the promises of God. The promises of God. So, That is what we're going to be looking at with the Lord's help this evening. And before we read together, let's just come once again in prayer before our great God. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we come before thee this evening in that wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank thee for the access that we have into thy throne room. What an amazing thing, Father, to think of the great high priest and to know that he is there at thy right hand interceding for us. To think of our advocate representing us before thee. Father, what a wonderful saviour we have this evening. And we pray that as we spend time in the open pages of thy word, that, Father, we would hear thy voice. And, Lord, we would ask that we would have open ears and open eyes to perceive truth from thy word tonight, to hear thy voice clearly from thy word. We thank thee for the truth and the clarity and the life-changing power of the scriptures. We thank thee, Father, that when we open this book, we hear thy voice. We pray, Lord, this evening that we might be attentive listeners to thy word. We thank thee for this chapter of scripture and we thank thee for all that it tells us of the future. And we thank thee, Father, that we can have such utter confidence in thee and in thy purposes and plans for this world. Lord, we thank thee for thy faithfulness. And we ask, Lord, this evening that we would be brought to love the Lord Jesus Christ more, that our affection, that our appreciation of him would grow. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So let's begin then by looking at this depiction of Israel's resurrection. As we look at the first half of this chapter, and I want you to first of all see a picture of death. And let's read the first three verses together. Now just to say before we do that, that chapter 36, chapter 36 is the truth of Israel's restoration stated. Stated. If you want to read a statement about the fact that Israel will be restored nationally in the future, then read chapter 36. But chapter 37 is that same truth, not stated, but illustrated. Illustrated. So let's read the first three verses of chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about and behold there were very many in the open valley and lo they were very dry and he said unto me son of man can these bones live and I answered O Lord God thou knowest O Lord God thou knowest amen Ezekiel is a book like many books in the scriptures of mountains and valleys Mountains and valleys are significant in the book of Ezekiel, but in another sense, it's a, a book of mountains and valleys. If you were to imagine a mountain range, now I've, I've had some lovely views of the Mourne Mountains today, and they're, they really are beautiful. If you were to stand at the north shore of Loch Ness, uh, it's about five minutes from where my parents live, and look down Loch Ness on a clear day, you would see row upon row of mountains. But of course, what you don't see with the human eye is the valleys in between those peaks, and so many books of the Bible are like that, aren't they? There are mountain peaks and there are very low valleys. Now, for instance, back in chapter 8, we were in an incredibly low valley. An incredibly low valley of apostasy, of sin, of idolatry. And we start in a valley full of bones in this chapter. But we're going to be ascending this evening. We're going to be ascending out of that deep and dark and dry valley up to the mountain top of God's purposes for his people. And we're going to see his faithfulness and his mercy and his grace. 
But we start with this picture of death, and it's a vivid picture, as Ezekiel yet again is taken in vision to a, a sort of mysterious location. Now, it seems that this valley is very likely the same valley that he's been in time and again through the scriptures thus far. But he sees that valley transformed. It's no longer a valley, an ordinary valley in Babylon. Here is a valley full of dry, dusty, decaying bones. What a picture. It's an an accurate picture. A very accurate picture, an illustration of the spiritual condition of the nation at that time. Now friends, how important is it for us to have an accurate understanding of our spiritual condition? Let me just read to you a verse that you will know in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, Paul writes this, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. How important, friends, is it for us to have an accurate understanding Not an inflated understanding, not a false understanding, but an accurate reflection of really where we stand spiritually before God. And that's a sobering thought, isn't it, for all of us? A sobering thought for all of us. As we seek with the Lord's help to account for, in an honest and straightforward way, where we stand before God spiritually this evening. Well, this valley of dry, dusty, decaying bones was an accurate picture of Israel's spiritual condition at the time. Now, I want to think about bones for a moment, and I want to take you back to Genesis, please, and uh, chapter 50. Genesis and chapter 50. A bit of an unusual theme, I suppose, to explore in the scriptures, but here it is on the page of the Bible, and let's go back to Genesis chapter 50. And we'll read from verse... 24. Here we come to the end of the life of the great patriarch Joseph. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you. Listen to this language. God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you. There we have it again, surely visit you. Twice stated, and you shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us about this in greater detail. We won't look at that uh, for just now, but that Joseph gave instruction concerning his bones. Joseph said to the children of Israel, now living in Egypt as they were, now remember that during the life of, uh, during the, the life of Joseph, The children of Israel were treated well in the land of Egypt. And the children of Israel had their own uh, parcel of land called Goshen in the land of Egypt. And they prospered in the land of Egypt. And Joseph would have no conception of what they were going to face when he died. Remember, that's really how the book of Exodus begins. That Joseph is dead and gone and a Pharaoh arises who doesn't know Joseph. Doesn't have the respect for Joseph. Doesn't understand the, the goodwill that Joseph has built up for his people. And they begin slowly but surely, to mistreat the children of Israel there in the land of Egypt. But at this point, Joseph has no idea that that's on the horizon, but he does know the promises of God. And he says, I know my God, and I know that he's faithful, and I know that his intention for you is not to remain in Egypt, 
Yes, God's prospered you here. And yes, God's made provision for the nation here to preserve you. Joseph had a wonderful perceptive heart and he could see God's providence uh, even at the worst times in his life. But we're not doing a study on Joseph this evening. But Joseph had such an insight of spiritual understanding and he's able to say, God's going to bring you out of this nation and back to the nation that he promised to Abraham. And so those bones, as they traveled with them, out of Egypt and into the wilderness, were a constant reminder to them, God's going to take us home. This land belongs to us by covenant promise. And those bones were a constant reminder of that. Turn forward now to Joshua. Joshua and chapter 24. Joshua and chapter 24. So just as we've looked at the concluding chapter to Genesis, now we look at the concluding chapter of Joshua. And let me remind you of verse 32. And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, in a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver. And it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. And so we find the fulfillment. The fulfillment of Joseph's uh, request that his bones be carried up from Egypt. And God has fulfilled his word. God has indeed brought his people back. Just imagine all the events that took place between those bones leaving Egypt and those bones being deposited in this field in Shechem. (laughs) You've got the parting of the Red Sea. You've got the manna coming down. You've got the quail coming down. You've got the defeat of uh, Og of Bashan. and You've got all of these defeats to get into the promised land. And at the end of the book of Joshua, the loose ends are being tied up as the bones of, of Joseph are deposited where they ought to be. Now, why am I concentrating on this? Because here Ezekiel is faced with this valley, which would be a familiar valley were it not for the fact that it is full of dry, dusty, decaying bones. And instead of being a reminder of God's faithfulness, as the bones of Joseph were, these are an indicator of the people's faithlessness. The people's faithlessness there in exile and back in Jerusalem. And we've had proof of it back in chapter 8. Now, there is, of course, a secondary application here in this picture of death. And let me stress that. It's a secondary application. Sometimes we hear sermons on this chapter, and it's a favorite chapter, I think, of preachers in many ways. And yet, of course, they miss entirely, they miss entirely the real purpose of this chapter, which is to teach us about Israel's national future. And they spiritualize the text here and they tell us that it's all about our spiritual resurrection. But there is a secondary application here and I want to make that clear. And I'd like to ask you to turn forward to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians and chapter 2. Ephesians 2 and reading from verse 1. And Paul writes, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Friends, outside of Christ, before the Lord Jesus Christ saved us, before we came to know the gospel, and not only know the gospel, but believe the gospel, and put our faith and trust in Christ, all of us here tonight were dead in trespasses and sins, but we have been made alive, been made alive, hallelujah, we've been made alive 
in Christ. We've been saved, redeemed, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven in him, made alive, new life. Isn't it wonderful to live a new life in Christ? To be out of that death, to be away from that decay, and to be standing on solid ground and following and loving the Saviour. I wonder tonight if you know the Saviour. I wonder tonight if you could call him your own. I wonder tonight if hand on heart you could say, I've trusted in him. And he's my Lord and he's my Saviour. He's my master. He's my friend. If tonight you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, then tonight is the night to do so. Because at the moment, as, as things stand currently, you're like these dry, dusty, decaying bones. And there's no life. There's no breath from God. And yet tonight you could receive that life. Tonight you could receive that life through simple faith and trust in Christ. But I stress, this is a secondary application. This really primarily is teaching us about the restoration, the resurrection of Israel in a future and a coming day. Let's turn forward and read from verse 4. Read from verse 4. And from a picture of death to the power of the word. The power of the word. And we'll read from verse 4. Again he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones. And say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking. And the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then he said unto me, here's the second stage, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Amen. The same Hebrew word here is translated and can be translated wind and breath and spirit. And it all depends on the context as to how it's translated, but it's the same word. And we have here at work, very clearly on the surface of the page, the power of the word of God. Only the word of God brings life. Only the word of God brings life. Let me tell you about a young man I met uh, last year. Uh, me and my friend Joshua, uh, who's a, a missionary with his wife Kerry in the Congo, we <clears throat> conducted a, a week's gospel mission in a village called Skelmanthorpe in Yorkshire, which is where uh, Josh was commended from. And uh, we had a wonderful week, um, and uh, just tracting and going door to door, and there were gospel meetings each night. And um, one of the most encouraging things that happened to us during that week was that we received a notification online from a young man. He said, I'm, my name's David. I'm 24, and um, I got saved last year. I got saved 10 months ago during lockdown. He said, I don't know any Christians. I'm not from a Christian family. Um, but I used to make fun of Christians at school. I used to make fun of Christians at school, and I got thinking during lockdown, what could I do? What could I do during lockdown to occupy my time? And he said, you know, I've never read the Bible, and yet I make fun of Christians at school. Maybe I should read it. Maybe I should read the Bible. So he ordered a Bible online, 
and it came to his house. And he sat in his bedroom in this little house in the village of Emily in Yorkshire, read the Bible, met the Lord Jesus Christ in its pages, and came to know the Saviour. Nobody led him to the Lord. The Lord led him to the Lord. And there in that room, his life was changed forever, completely and utterly transformed. And he said, I've been along to the two churches in my village, but they don't really seem to talk much about the Bible. He said, could I, could I come to your gospel meetings that you're holding? And we said, absolutely. He said, where can I park my motorbike? We said, well, uh, anywhere you like. And uh, please come along uh, anytime you can. And he came Monday, Wednesday, Friday. He had work commitments on the Tuesday and the Thursday. But sure enough, he came each night he could. And he's now baptised and in fellowship at uh, Savile Road Hall in Skelmanthorpe and going on so well uh, for the Lord. Just absolutely wonderful. And he's drinking in everything he can because his life has been transformed. There was a boy picking on Christians in his school and mocking them for what they believed. And his life has been transformed. And what's made the difference? The power of the word of God. And what, spiritually speaking, was just dry bones has come to life. And he's living and he's serving and he's walking with the Savior. The power of the word of God. Let me read to you a verse in John 5. John 5 and verse 25. John 5 and verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Have you heard that voice? Have you heard that voice? Have you heeded it? And are you living today? Every Christian in this room tonight, every person who's born again, would be able to say, yes, I'm alive tonight. I'm really, truly alive. And the moment that we trusted Christ was the moment when our eyes opened and we were alive really for the first time. You know, the BBC and the society that we're living in has done a great job of portraying Christianity as a life of, of sort of boredom and a dreary life, a life that you wouldn't really want to have, a life where you're missing out on the best. And we as God's people would say nothing, nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. There is nothing like serving the Lord Jesus. He is the greatest of masters and the Christian life is an adventure. It's an adventure. Well, we had a picture of death and we've been confronted with the power of the word as these dry bones become living beings and not only living beings but a mighty army. Feinberg in his commentary points out that the two stages of the, the, the process of renewal here reminds us of the two stages in the book of Genesis uh, and chapter 2. Remember in uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 it says that he formed man from the dust of the ground. So there's man formed, but then he breathes life into him. He breathes life into him. And that's exactly what's paralleled here in Ezekiel 37. They come to life, as it were, in terms of flesh. They've got bodies, they've got sinew, they've got muscle, but then the breath of God comes. You know, I always think this when I'm speaking to an atheist, perhaps, and uh, you could point them to an animal in the field, couldn't you? And maybe there's a, a cow that's, that's just perished, a cow that's died. Every single thing that was there in the cow when it was alive is still there one minute after its death. Every muscle is still there, every sinew is still there, every bone is still there, every ounce of flesh on the animal is still there. 
So what's gone wrong? What's missing? Life. Life. And man, man, with all our pomposity and all our high ideas about ourselves and all our notions that we can solve every problem, you can't restore life. You can't restore life. One minute after, one millisecond after that life has gone from the animal, you can't restore it. There's nothing that man in all his pride can do and yet we still won't recognize the creator uh, because then we'd be responsible, wouldn't we, for our sin. The power of the word of God. And then let's read on from verse 11 and we'll see the purposes of God. The purposes of God. So back to Ezekiel 37 and we'll read from verse 11. Then he said unto me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. That's significant and we'll touch on that in a moment because this is not just Judah. This is the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore, prophesy and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Friends, that confidence, that covenant confidence in a covenant-keeping God that Joseph had so many centuries before in the history of Israel is now being infused into Ezekiel the prophet by God himself. I'm going to do exactly as I always promised and return my people to the land of promise. Verse uh, 14, And shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it, and performed it, saith the Lord. Amen. The purposes of God. Let me just say briefly on this subject, brothers and sisters, God is true. God is true to all of his promises. God is true to all of his promises. And you know, brothers and sisters, I I don't need to stress this here at Points Pass Baptist Church, but God is true to his promises to us. But you know, he's true to his promises to the Jewish nation too. And that's absolutely vital. You know, and you'll be aware, of course, that the general teaching in the church worldwide today is that God has finished with the nation of Israel. They're on the shelf of world history and they're no more significant than any other nation or any other people. And God has shifted his focus entirely from them. They're gone, they're finished, they're done for. And he's shifted his focus to the church of the Lord Jesus. And we become the beneficiaries of all the blessings due to Israel. But never any of the curses. Never any of the curses. They don't want those. They want to accrue to the church all the blessings of Israel. They start to talk about the church in the wilderness. The church in the Old Testament. And nothing could be more foreign to the word of God than that. The church was a mystery. Brought into being on the day of Pentecost. And we have the pleasure and privilege of belonging to it now. But we haven't usurped Israel. We've been graciously brought in to the nation of Israel. Isn't that wonderful? God in his grace. God in his love and his mercy. Wasn't content to be confined to one nation. He was perfectly within his rights to be confined to one nation. God in his sovereignty, God in his majesty, would have been well within his rights to set his love on nobody. But even if he did choose one nation, he'd be well within his rights simply to choose that nation and to deal with them only. But he had a love and a heart for us. There's a lovely theme all the way through the Old Testament 
as the clues are dropped, as the, the breadcrumb trail is left through the Old Testament that God always intended for the Gentiles to be so richly blessed through the Messiah of the Jews. And here we are. It's 2023 and we're in Northern Ireland, somewhere that wouldn't even have been in the imagination of the characters of Scripture. And we love Jesus. And our lives have been transformed by him. That's remarkable. God is true to all of his promises. Let's just let the Bible speak about these for a moment and turn to Isaiah 11. Turn to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 and 11 and 12. I had difficulty, to be honest, in selecting scriptures to read at this point because there are so many. But just to give ourselves a taster of what the word of God says on this subject. Isaiah chapter 11 and reading from verse 11. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt, from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now friends, you can't tell me that that's simply two verses about the growth of the church. These are specific and detailed prophecies about God's detailed and specific dealings with one nation on the face of the earth. God is faithful to his promises and faithful to his promises in detail. God doesn't do a bait and switch. He doesn't say to Abraham, I'm going to deal with your descendants, your physical descendants, and later say, I didn't really mean that. I meant spiritual descendants. I meant others. I I, I wasn't talking about your seed. When Abraham would have understood that God was talking about his seed, his physical seed. The purposes of God. Turn forward to Jeremiah. Jeremiah and chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. And we'll read from verse 37. Again, the passages that we're reading, we could be reading 10 times these, this number of passages on exactly the same subject. Jeremiah 32, reading from verse 37, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again unto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them, and so on. We could read on, but we'll stop there for the sake of time. I remember going to the Jerusalem Museum uh, when I was in Israel, and uh, they had a fascinating exhibition on at that time. I think it was a temporary exhibition. And what it was was reconstructions of synagogues from all over the world. It was fascinating. There were synagogues from Jakarta, synagogues from Hong Kong, synagogues from Nigeria, synagogues from Buenos Aires, synagogues from Mexico, synagogues from Canada. Friends, the Bible tells us that God was going to scatter his people all over the face of the earth. Never has a people been more widely scattered than the Jewish people all over this world, and yet they have remained completely and utterly distinct. Show me today an ancient Mesopotamian. You can't. Show me today an ancient Babylonian. You can't. Show me today somebody who belongs to the ancient Assyrian kingdom. You can't. 
If you want to find a Jewish person, it's easy to do. They are distinct and distinguishable people on the face of the earth today, and God has preserved them as such. Remarkable testimony to his faithfulness and to the power of his word. Well, the purposes of God are going to be worked out and nothing can stop them. We've looked at this first section, friends, a depiction of Israel's resurrection. They're going to be spiritually resurrected in a coming day. And now let's move on to think about this description of their restoration. And we'll read from verse 15. If you turn uh, to verse 15, please. And let's read from verse 15 to verse 22. And the idea here, the emphasis, is one people from two. One people from two. So let's read from verse 15. The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it. For Judah and for the children of Israel his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it. For Joseph the stick of Ephraim and for all the house of Israel his companions. And join them one to another into one stick and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick. And they shall be one in mine hand, and the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. The title I've given to this section, friends, is One People from Two. One People from Two. Now, in order to understand what we're dealing with here, I want us just to do a little bit of work in our Bibles and go back, please, to the book of 1 Kings. If you could turn, please, back to the book of 1 Kings and to when it all went so badly wrong. 1 Kings and chapter 11. Of course, you remember that uh, Saul was the first king, but he was from the wrong tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. The book of Genesis tells us in chapter 49 that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, not from Benjamin. And so we're waiting for a king from the tribe of Judah and he comes along and who is he? David. And then David's son Solomon takes the kingdom to a zenith. It's never before seen. But then after Solomon, Solomon of course had a sinful reign as did David in many ways too. But the end of the reign was in division. The sad parting of the ways of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And let's read a little bit about it. So 1 Kings chapter 11, and we'll read from verse 30. Here, the prophet Ahijah is confronting Jeroboam. The kingdom is about to divide between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And Ahijah brings these words from verse 30. And Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him, that's on Jeroboam, and rent it in 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take thee ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and will give ten tribes to thee. But he shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me. And then we could read on and remind ourselves of the worship, the idolatrous worship they had indulged in. 
But then, please, down to verse 34. Howbeit I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him prince all the days of his life for David my servant's sake, whom I chose, because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it unto thee even ten tribes. And unto his son will I give one tribe. And then, I love this language, and I want you to just listen carefully to this. Why is he insisting on a southern kingdom? Why is he insisting on a division? And why is he giving Judah this place of prominence. Verse 36, that David, my servant, may have a light always before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen to put my name there. God had this promise, this intention, that there would always be a lamp. There would always be a light of testimony flickering, shining, sometimes very dimly, sometimes more brightly for David, for the sake of the covenant that God made with David, because God never breaks a covenant. There are roughly three types of covenant in the scriptures. We don't have time to go into all of them, but uh, roughly three types. That is covenants that God makes with man. Covenants that God makes with man. And then there are covenants that men make with God. They're not divinely initiated. They're often rash. And they're very seldom fulfilled. And then there's the third type, which is man-to-man covenants, like the covenant made between David and Jonathan, for instance, and there are sinful covenants too um, between wicked men in the Old Testament as well. But that first type of covenant, you can always be absolutely guaranteed that it will be kept because it depends on the faithfulness of God. It depends on the faithfulness of God, that first type of covenant. Well, one people are going to be made from two It's always God's intention to bring the people together. He didn't want a divided kingdom in perpetuity. These sticks are interesting. They were to write names, uh, these two names on the sticks. It takes us back in our minds to number 17. We don't have time to turn there just now. But just remember Korah's rebellion. Do you remember Korah's rebellion? And do you remember how they solved the problem of this rebellion amongst the priestly classes? And they took sticks, they took rods. They're called in number 17. And they wrote the names of the Levitical families on these rods. And it was Aaron's rod that budded. Do you remember that? Aaron's rod that budded and it was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. It reminds us of that. It reminds us of these rods that really speak of scepters. I wonder if you've been to the Tower of London. Uh, If you've ever been to London and you can go to the Tower of London and you can go and see the, the jewels, the crown jewels of the royal family of the United Kingdom. And you'll find, of course, a number of thrones, the imperial throne, uh, which was to do with India, with the regency of India. And you can look at the state throne, uh, the state crown, rather. And then there's the orb, and there's the scepter. And the scepter is that symbol of royalty. And that's why it's so significant that in Genesis 49, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, because Judah would be the royal tribe, the tribe, of course, of David, the tribe that our dear Savior came from. Well, one people are going to be made from two. There are no lost tribes as far as God is concerned. There are no lost tribes as far as God is concerned. They were always meant to reunite. Let me just read you one little verse tucked away in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 11. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Israel and Judah together again. Now let's read just one verse, verse 23 of our chapter, Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 23, thinking here about the purity that God desires, the purity that God desires. 
Verse 23 says, Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols. We can almost feel a sigh of relief. What a wonderful statement for a man who's seen what he saw in Ezekiel chapter 8. Who's seen the filthiness and the abominations that he saw in the 8th in the chapter of this book. Remember it, friends. Remember as the temple was revealed and he went in and in and in. And when he got to the very center of things, there were these 25 with their backs turned to God. Making an offensive gesture toward heaven and worshipping the sun. And that same prophet is being told, Ezekiel, I'm bringing you comfort. I'm bringing you hope. And I am guaranteeing to you that there's coming a day when they're not going to defile themselves any longer. With their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people and I will be their God. Friends, what a wonderful privilege to be part of the people of God this evening. To be part of the people of God and to be cleansed. I wonder, friends, if we have a right understanding of how sinful our sin really is. And yet this evening, brothers and sisters, we have been totally and completely and comprehensively cleansed of all our sin. As I said a couple of nights ago, Satan's great desire is to remind you of your sin. To call it up again. And our reply to him, of course, is, Satan, it's been paid in full. It has been paid in full. And I no longer stand condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And not only is there no condemnation, not only has there been a cancellation of all sin. You know, I used to work in the courts. Um, I worked at, when I was finishing my legal training, I worked in the courts. My, I was a court officer, as we call them in Scotland, in the sheriff court. Uh, you call them judges and we call them sheriffs. And... Um, and uh, my job was to be the man that says, all rise, and everybody has to stand. And I would try and keep order in the courtroom, which wasn't very easy because I'm not very intimidating. Uh, but I tried, to, I tried to keep order in the courtroom, etc., and get court papers for the sheriff and all that sort of thing. But, you know, I saw people being acquitted. I saw people being acquitted, and rightly so. Uh, they had been proved to be innocent, and they would receive what we call in Scotland an admonishment, where um, it, it's clear that there's nothing going to go on their criminal record, and that what they're charged with, they are no longer charged with, and they're free to go. Now friends, that is one aspect of salvation truth. One aspect of salvation truth. Because what we were charged with, we were guilty of. What we were charged with, we were guilty of. And we stood in the dock and we heard guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. And all of us would put our hands up tonight to that. Guilty as charged. And yet, of course, it goes beyond just an acquittal. It goes beyond just an acquittal because we have been forgiven of all our sin. That record, that debt that stood between us and God has been totally cancelled. There isn't one single thing to account for tonight for a Christian. Not one single thing to account for. But it goes beyond that. Because then the righteousness, the spotless purity of the Lord Jesus is then made over to our account. So if we were to look up our file, as it were, in the court system of heaven, we wouldn't just find that all our sins had been cancelled. We would actually find that that spotless, perfect record of Christ was tucked into our file. 
So when he looks upon me tonight, I can hardly believe it, but it's true. When he looks upon me tonight and he looks upon you if you're saved this evening, what he sees, what the divine eye sees, is the spotless purity of the Lord Jesus. That's a stunning thing. That's a stunning thing. It goes way beyond acquittal, way beyond innocence to purity. There's a purity that God desires and he's going to make sure he gets it from his people in a coming day. Let me take you to Zechariah, please. The book of Zechariah and chapter 12. Zechariah and chapter 12. One day, the children of Israel are going to see their Messiah. And one day they're going to realize that it was Jesus all along. I remember when I was in Jerusalem, I had about six weeks in Jerusalem, and my evenings were largely free. I was volunteering at the Garden Tomb as a tour guide, showing people around the complex of the Garden Tomb. Um, And my evenings were largely quiet and free, so I would take myself off into the Old City down um, the, uh, through the Damascus Gate and into the Old City and just go exploring. And um, on the Friday night, I thought I would go along as a Gentile observer to the synagogue. As a Gentile, you can go and you can observe what goes on in the synagogue. And I did that. Now, of course, not speaking Hebrew, I enjoyed it and it was interesting to listen to, but I didn't really know what was going on. So I asked somebody, when I come back next week, what could I do to make sure that I can follow things a bit more? Because there's a lot of liturgy and a lot of pattern to it. And I wanted to understand it. So they said, well, go to this particular shop over there and buy a prayer book. And uh, when you come next week, I'll show you which section we're in and I'll help you understand what's going on. Very glad I did that. I've still got that prayer book and went into the synagogue with this book and uh, was able to have much a clearer understanding of what was going on. But I tell you what was deeply moving, deeply moving, was to see in the prayer book the very moment where they're all singing with, with real sincerity, oh, how we long for the Messiah to come. Oh, how we long for the Messiah to come. And I'm sitting there, not able to communicate with them, wanting to say, but I know him. I know him. And I love him. And he loves me. And he longs to love you too. He does love you. And he wants you to come into a relationship with him. Very moving indeed. The purity that God desires. Well, let's look at Zechariah chapter 12. One day, the world is going to be gathered in anti-Semitic fervor against the nation of Israel. And yet they're going to get the shock of their lives. Verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Very serious and somber thing to align yourself against the people of God. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him. Uh, Sorry, yes, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. It was Jesus all along. But when they are given this spirit of grace and supplication and they are enabled by the Spirit of God to come to God in repentance, what provision is there? Surely it's far too late now. 
He came unto his own, and his own received him not. They nailed my Lord to Calvary's tree. And they're rejecting him still all over the world. In ones and twos and small groups, Jews are coming to know their Messiah. And we're so grateful for that. And we pray for those who endeavor to make the gospel known uh, to Jews all over the world. And we're so grateful that in small groups they're coming to know him. But largely, largely, nationally, on a grand scale, they are still rejecting him. Surely by this point, it's too late for them. Well, chapter 13 opens like this. In that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. Yet again, God is true to form and says, no, there's mercy available. There's mercy available for you. I wonder tonight, friends, if you've availed yourself of the mercy of God because there's mercy available for you. There's mercy available for you in the cross. What's the fountain of chapter 13, verse 1? What fountain could there be that would bring cleansing? It's exactly the same fountain that you and I sing about when we sing about a fountain of blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins. It's that very same fountain. Nobody will get to heaven other than through the cross of the Lord Jesus. A million years from now, nobody will be in God's presence who has not got there through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one way of salvation. Let's look at our final section and go back with me to Ezekiel 37 as we draw our thoughts to a close this evening. Ezekiel 37, and let's read from verse 24 to the end of the chapter about the promises of God. And I want you to notice as we read this section, four eternal things. Four eternal things. In fact, I'll give you them now, and I want you to notice them as we read them. They are the land and eternal possession. The land and eternal possession. David, an eternal prince. David, an eternal prince. Thirdly, the covenant of eternal peace. And lastly, the eternal presence of God. So let's notice them as we read this section from 24 to the end of the chapter. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Amen. Four eternal things. The land and eternal possession. Do you remember, I think it was, I think it was back in, on Sunday, or perhaps Monday, that I spoke about the distinction between ownership and possession. Ever since God promised the land to Abraham, the Jewish people, his descendants, have owned by legal right, by divine legal right, the land of Israel. They've owned it. 
In fact, they've owned much more than the modern uh, land of Israel. They've owned an awful lot more land than that. And they'll one day come into possession of it. We're reading about that now. But they've owned the land of Israel. You know, uh, on my uh, dad's bookshelf back home, there's uh, an old Bible that was in my granddad's house. And when my granddad went to be with the Lord, we got this Bible. And it's called the Scots Bible. And I'm not sure of the name of the commentator, but it's an ancient uh, Bible, really, I think, from the sort of late 1800s. And... um, there's the text at the top and then comments below. And I can't remember exactly which scripture it's a comment on, perhaps something in Zechariah or Jeremiah about the restoration of the Jews to the land of Israel. But he was a faithful commentator of his day, faithful. And he says about this, he says, although this seems politically impossible, we must nonetheless believe it will one day take place. Although this seems politically impossible, we must believe it will one day take place. Well, friends, we're living on the other side of that reality. And in 1948, the nation of Israel was reborn. And there is today a nation called Israel. And there is today a Jewish nation on the face of this earth. Now, it's not a fulfillment of what we're reading about. It's a stepping stone towards that fulfillment. It's not, it's not the full fulfillment of what we're reading about here. You know, if you go and see a production, if you go and see a production in the theatre, you arrive and uh, in the moments before the play begins, what do you see on the stage? You see the pieces being put into place. You see the setting being built. You see the props being put where they need to be. And then it gets darkest before the curtain rises, doesn't it? It gets darkest before the curtain rises, and I believe that's when we're living. It's getting very, very dark, but any moment now the curtain's going to rise, and the end time drama is going to begin. Now, of course, we're not in it, and we won't be part of it, because we'll be gazing on the glory of the Lord Jesus. According to John 14, John 17, we'll be beholding his glory as he requested. He wants us to be there with him, beholding his glory. That's an amazing thing because if you knew everything about me, you wouldn't want to spend time with me. But the Lord Jesus has said about all of us tonight, knowing everything about us, I want them to be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Well, the land's going to be an eternal possession. They're going to possess all that was promised to them in the book of Genesis, every last hectare, every last acre of it. And they're going to hold it in perpetuity because it belongs to them by divine right. And then secondly, we're told that they're going to have an eternal prince. And he's described here as David. Now, me and David were discussing this earlier in the week. And um, there are different schools of thought on this. And some would see this as literally David himself. Uh, David, who of course is alive today in heaven. But David returned and installed as king. And some would see it as pointing forward to great David's greater son, Uh, Now, I'm not sure either way, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, whether this is David himself or great David's greater son. But either way, it is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Either way, it's a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, whether it's David or his son. 2 Samuel 7, the covenant with David, doesn't necessitate that it be David himself. It could be a descendant of David. It's likely to be a descendant of David, but it's a difficult question. But nonetheless, God is faithful to all promises absolutely scrupulously faithful to all promises. Thirdly, there's going to be an eternal covenant of peace. This is the same new covenant spoken of in Jeremiah 31. 
And we have been brought in as God's people in this dispensation to the new covenant in his blood. And that's what we remember, isn't it? When we meet together around the Lord's table, we've been brought into the new covenant in his blood. And then lastly, they're promised that God will be in their midst and his presence will eternally be with them. The eternal presence of God. Friends, I wonder if you ever read the scriptures and uh, I posed this question a couple of nights ago. I wonder if you ever read the scriptures and just think, I wish I could have been alive then. I love the book of Acts. And sometimes I wish I lived back in the book of Acts. In those early chapters of, of the book of Acts, or, or maybe in the Gospels, or, or maybe in the Old Testament. But you know, there has never been a more privileged time to live than now. Why is that? Why has there never been a more privileged time to live than now? Because nobody prior to Pentecost had the Holy Spirit living within them. And the very moment, the very moment you placed your faith and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and made his dwelling place in you. There is a teaching, of course, uh, spread amongst uh, Christianity where they say, you become a Christian, and then at some later point you receive the Holy Spirit. The New Testament doesn't know anything of that. The New Testament teaches that the very moment you place your faith and trust in Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. There aren't two levels of Christian, the Christian and the Spirit-filled Christian. There are only Christians. And all of us who've been born again are filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. God has promised he'll be in the midst. And Ezekiel 40 to 48 is all about that. His sanctuary. His dwelling place is going to be literally, physically, in the midst of Jerusalem. Jesus is in our midst. Jesus is in our midst. Now, I know that we're here, we're in an ordinary hall, we're ordinary people, it's a Thursday night. But Jesus really is here tonight. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? Jesus really is here tonight. And he's present, you know, he's present to encourage He's present to comfort, and he's present to save. I wonder if you've been saved. Jesus is here tonight, and he can and he will save you if you place your faith and trust in him. Friends, what does this chapter teach us? It teaches us that God is faithful to all of his promises. If he could break a promise he made to Israel, he could break a promise that he makes to me in Christ. And yet he never will, and he never has. He's utterly, completely reliable and faithful in every point, and therefore we can have complete confidence in his promises, because they're yea and amen in Christ. Amen.